Hang on, there's 28 names down here. I only picked 26. Well, that's the list you gave me. Charlie Edges, York City. I didn't pick him, love. You must have, Mike. I wouldn't have put him down otherwise. I've never heard of him, have I? And who's this clown, Ron Benson, Plymouth Argyle? I copied the list you gave me. Oh, come on, Margaret. Tell me where it says Benson and Hedges on that. The film's curious lack of ambition makes it a parochial affair that will probably only appeal to die-hard soccer nuts and their long-suffering partners. Neil Smith, BBC.com. There's just not enough great gags in Mike Bassett to make it funnier than Kevin Keegan's time in the England hot seat. Harry Guerin, RTE. Such an unnecessary movie shot in a crummy pseudo-documentary style, Ian Mantangi. This week, we watched Mike Bassett, England Manager. Hello and welcome to Britcom Ghost of the Movies, the podcast where we examine the journeys of small screen British comedy programmes, sketches and talent to the big screen, one movie at a time. Joining me as always, he wouldn't give you the steam off his piss, that fella, it's Guy Walker. And sometimes it can be half past seven or eight o'clock before he gets his tea, but he doesn't complain about it, he just gets on with it. It's Rob Heath. Thank you, Guy. For the first time on Britcom Goes to the Movies, we're joined by a guest, someone with first-hand experience of the British comedy industry, so we're no longer just two weirdos shouting from the sidelines. It's TV comedy writer Steve Dunn. Hi, Steve. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. What are your thoughts on the theory that British comedy TV to cinema transfers are a bad idea? Have you got any kind of like examples that you think either support or discredit that claim? I don't, I don't think it's a bad idea, but it's often a bad practice. <laughs> Is there a reason why it does go wrong? I think it's just so hard to turn something that works in one format into a different format. You know, like the the 30 or, or you know, if they're on like Channel 4 ITV or something, the 22 minute episode sitcom that mm. really works in that format and has done for years and not not only does it work we all understand it now you know if you've been watching something for five six years and you you only know it in that way and the characters only work in that way where like, they don't often like learn lessons and you know there's it's i guess there's loads of there's loads of detail but generally i think it's just that that kind of it's it's not impossible, but it's like to transition from those two formats is really hard. I think like probably in today's day and age, it's getting easier because I think TV is becoming closer to film in terms of like stylistically, but like also th- the length of the episodes because on a lot of streaming platforms, an episode could be 20 minutes and then the next one might be 40 and th- they're just sort of closer to being films, I think. And I think that's it's something, a, a kind of minor example of that is something we touched on in the last episode, Guy, when we were talking about, well, how taken aback we both were after like a minute of Man About the House movie with no laughter, having just watched the entire first series all with laughter track. Mm. And then nothing, and no laughter track. I mean, it's, it seems like an obvious thing to say because it's a film. Uh, but it's it's like you say, how how sitcoms have changed. Interesting what you were saying about sitcoms kind of, changing stylistically making the process a bit easier i would make an argument that you could trace a lot of that kind of back to um the royal family and and the royal family changed british sitcoms quite significantly 
Uh, but first, I got some facts and figures about uh, Mike Bassett, England manager. It was released on the 28th of September 2001, uh, which September 2001, quite a significant month, obviously, news wise, but also a significant month for the England football team. Do you know what else happened that month? Was it the Greece game? The Greece game, I think, was actually the October, so we'll we'll get back to that later. It was another big England game. Not Germany. The 5-1. The 5-1 in Munich. So a good time to release a football film, a, uh, a film about the England football team off the back of one of England's greatest ever results. Um, it was known in Brazil as Mike Bassett, O Treniador Ingles, and in Hungary as Amenetza. Uh, apologies to our Hungarian <laughs> listeners for my terrible pronunciation there. It was produced by Artists Independent Productions, the Film Council and Hallmark Entertainment, and it was distributed in the UK by Entertainment Film Distributors, which just sounds like a placeholder made-up name. Mm. Um, I didn't have any budget stats. Um, yeah, it took a total UK gross of £3.4 million, taking 835,000 in its first week. Uh, in the debut week, went to number three in the UK box office behind AI and Moulin Rouge, and it spent 10 weeks in the top 10. No, sorry, four weeks in the top 10. Or 10 weeks in the top four. Four weeks in the top 10. Uh, it was directed by Steve Barron, who was known for directing some of the most famous music videos of all time, including Money for Nothing by Dire Straits, Don't You Want Me by The Human League, uh, Billie Jean, and Take On Me. So, you know, like some of iconic music videos uh, and it was written by Rob Sprackling and Johnny Smith both who had uh, large impressive CVs for writing animated comedies uh, after Mike Bassett uh, has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 40% which isn't great uh, but an audience Rotten Tomatoes score is 76% so that just goes to show the disparity between audiences and critics on this film uh, and an mm. IMDb score of 6.8. So one of the higher ones of what we've done so far, Guy. Yeah, I think it probably is the highest when you consider lesbian vampire killers staggered a man about the house. I'm sure we're in the lowly fives. Yeah, well, four, fours or threes possibly as well. Yeah. Um, mm. Guy, you've been looking at the cast and crew in their Britcom credentials and connections. Yeah, so obviously the film starred Ricky Tomlinson, who best known for, like you said, the royal family, his role of Jim Royal. He started out in Brookside between 1982 and 1988, where I believe he also acted with uh, Sue Johnston, who was also in the royal family. He was in Cracker for, I think, a couple of series between 1994 and 1996, which I didn't realise. Series 2 of Paul Abbott's Clocking Off, which I seem to remember was quite big in the early Nazis, I seem to think. So then Amanda Redman plays, uh, is it Corinne, his wife, who's a sort of um, former 70s glamour girl in the film. Uh, she studied at RADA with Miranda Richardson and Daniel Day-Lewis. Wow. Well, also the same year. Best known for starring in Home with the Braithwaite's, which... Ah, yeah, the lottery-winning family. Yeah, with yeah. Doctor Who. Yeah, what, um, oh, Peter Davison. Mm. Yeah, so yeah, about a family from Leeds who win thirty-eight million on the lottery, and then new tricks, a police procedural with Dennis Waterman and James Bolam. 
she's in one of my favorite films, guys, Sexy Beast. I was well. just coming to that. Oh, sorry. Was... No, no, you're fine. Uh, yeah, she was in. The, I've put she was in the excellent Sex of Bees playing Dee Dee Dove. It's uh, J. Uh, what is it? Um, Ray Winston's wife, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Brilliant film that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Bradley Walsh started out presenting before going into acting. He was actually a lower league footballer before injury ended his career at 22. His first job was our acting job, rather, was a small role in the Lockstock TV show. So yeah, he's, uh, he went on to do, like you said, Rob, Coronation Street, 2004-2006, Law and Order UK, he was in Doctor Who between 2018 and 2022. He also did a sitcom called Suntrap in 2015 that I don't remember that had Kevan Novak, Keith Allen and Jamie Demetrio. Which... Wow, Suntrap. Yeah, good cast, but do not remember, and it only yeah. did one series and it got unfavourable reviews and was kicked off TV. Dean Lennox Kelly um, had small roles in uh, a TV show we've already mentioned in the previous episode, Tipping the Velvet, and the Ben Miller sitcom The Worst Week of My Life, which I really liked. I liked uh, that, yeah. Yeah. I've not heard of that. What, what's it about? Yeah, it was a sitcom where Ben Miller's getting married to Sarah Alexander, who's in coupling, and yeah. it's sort of like the week leading up to him getting married and everything goes wrong. He he loses the engagement or the wedding ring, or is it the engagement ring? He kills the family dog of like his in laws. It just goes wrong. It's like a British sitcom version of Meet the Parents, was how I remembered it. Yeah, I think that's how it was billed as as well. Yeah, yeah that sounds great. It's it's worth checking out. I would recommend what, what, it. What year did that come out? After that's that's after Mike Bassett. I think that was when we were at university. I think that was okay. a, around two thousand four, something like that. Good, good one. Yeah. So yeah, it it? came out two thousand and four, and I think they did two series and a Christmas special. Cool. Yeah. Good yeah. So yeah, that was that was really good. Um, I think he's probably best known for playing Kev Ball opposite Mac- Maxine Peake in Shameless. Um, he did an ITV comedy drama, Married Single Other, Other, with Ralph Little and Lucy Davis in 2010, but that only lasted for one series. And film-wise, we're probably going to see him again in 2009's Frequently Asked Questions About Time Travel with Chris O'Dowd, Mark Wooten, and Anna Faris. And then there's Philip Jackson, who plays uh, Lonnie Urquhart in the film. He was Chief Inspector Jap in the Pryo TV series. He's also in... Another of our uh, things we mentioned before, Robin of Sherwood. He was Abbott Hugo. He was also in Aha's Take On Me music video. Well, there oh. you go. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's done lots of TV and film. He was in Brassed Off, My Week with Marilyn and Little Britain. So he's kind of been in a lot of stuff. He's in something that we've mentioned before as well, Cruise of the Gods, which I really like. He plays the uh, the writer of the of the TV show that they're on the cruise to celebrate, uh, who doesn't give a shit and is pissed all the time. I really like Philip Jackson. I think he's always pretty good. I, I yeah, I think he's always pretty good when it whenever he comes up. Um, Rob Spracklin and Johnny Smith, the writers, started off in Animal Show, Jim Henson produ- uh, production, which I didn't really know that well, and then a lot of animated movies such as Shaun the Sheep, the movie, Romeo and Juliet. Sherlock Gnomes and the Queen's the Queen's Corgi. Then we have Steve Barron, our director. So, like you said, Rob, best known for his work in the eighties, doing music videos. 
He also directed Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in 1990, which I definitely saw as a child. At one point, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the most successful independent film of all time. I wouldn't have thought that it was a independent movie because it was yeah. it was massive. It's made yeah. by New Line, I think, who were in, outside the studio system and making a name for themselves. I uh, I won it as a kid on VHS as well. I entered a competition in the newspaper and won. So early, early Sam Rockwell performance, I think. In the... it's it's is that when like when you're a kid, you just love whatever you saw. So like. <laughs> I saw the second one before I saw the first one, just because of my age, I suppose. And it was like, is it, I think it was called like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and the Secret of the Ooze or something like that. Yeah. And um, I remember just being like, yeah, that one's way better. But like now, I'm like, oh, clearly the first one was actually the popular one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like that used to happen all the time. Like, I, um, my family just because basically the first one, right? You, you guys, I'm sure will remember these two films. The first one was a 15 and the second one was a PG. So my family, my parents let us rent out the second one. Um, and the second one was called Another Stakeout. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Remember the Stakeout film? Yeah, I do. And I didn't see Stakeout for years. And the second one, I was like, it's such an amazing film. <laughs> <laughs> I saw the first one for the first time recently. And it is t- it's very pervy, isn't it, Stakeout? It's a long time well, since I've, I've seen, seen it. it. It's just the t- it's just Richard Dreyfuss perving on. Mad- is it Madeline Stowe? I think so. I think it is. Um, yeah, it's. I think I watched it as a kid. Yeah. I'm sure I watched it with my dad. I don't know if I watched another stakeout. We definitely watched. <laughs> oh, you Richard Dreyfuss. Another stakeout. <laughs> Similarly, I saw Weekend at Bernie's too before seeing Weekend at Bernie's. And, Me too. Uh, yeah, always thought. That that was the uh, the stronger offering. I, but... Similar with um, Speed Two Cruise Control. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, yeah. So going back to Steve Barron, he also did Coneheads, the Dan Aykroyd movie from nineteen ninety three, which I think was massive flop. Or it certainly didn't do very well. Did it? It's derided. I've I've not seen it, but it, it was an SNL sketch, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It, it then became a film. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And then he did a film called Rat in twenty, uh, sorry, in the in the year two thousand, with Imelda Staunton and Pete Pofflethwaite about a working class man who turns into a rat and the effect it has on his family, based on Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka. So <laughs> heavy, heavy stuff for a movie <laughs> video director, <laughs> or or is it? I don't. Yeah. I'm not sure. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. It sounds like a music video, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It does. So those are our Britcom connections and credentials. So, Rob, are you going to lead us through a bit on the royal family? Now? I'm going to I'm going to talk about the royal family and the royal family. A little bit about, about the royal family. It was devised and written by Caroline Ahern and Craig Cash, who played Denise and Dave in the show. Uh, they met whilst working on a radio show in Stockport and collaborated together, writing Mrs. Merton and sketches for the Fast Show. Uh, they said in the documentary "Royal Family Down the Back of the Sofa." Uh, that they spent so much time on the phone talking to each other, uh, telling each other, uh, telling one another about what their mum or their dad had said. And so they wanted to create a show that kind of reflected like a real time half hour slice of family life as they remembered. Um, And that would mostly involve watching TV, which obviously a film about people watching TV in the mid to late 90s, that was quite a, a bold idea. 
Um, Ahern, who at this point uh, had quite a lot of sway at BBC after huge success of Mrs. Merton and The Far Show, she essentially refused to make another Mrs. Merton series when the BBC really wanted her to make a fourth Mrs. Merton series. And she said, I'm not doing it unless you let me make this programme that Craig Cash and I have come up with, The Royal Family, uh, which was a big gamble for her and her future at the BBC. But because Mrs. Merton was so successful, they said yes. Uh, and they let her and Craig Cash make it at Granada Studios for the BBC because they didn't want to leave the Northwest. So, yeah, she, she was very much, well, they were both very much calling the shots on it. Um, Mark Mylods was brought in to direct the first series. He'd worked with the Hearn on the Far Show, and he he's also directed some of my favourite comedy of the 90s, a couple of episodes of Shooting Stars, the whole series of Bang Bang, It's Reason Mortimer. But now Mark Mylods most famous for Succession, and, uh, oh, and yeah. he's directed most of Succession yeah. and a f- quite a few episodes of Game of Thrones. And he also recently directed the movie The Menu. And, oh, yeah. Oh, wow. And he directed Ali G in the house. So we're going to come back to him in quite some detail at some point. Wow. I actually, I had to, Mark my, Mark my Lord is one of those people whose name you always read, but never hear out loud. So I had to, I went on YouTube to double check how it was pronounced. <laughs> and Not like was, m- my Lord. Mark yeah. my Lord. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, it was how I thought it was. But because this was a, the video that I clicked on where he's introducing himself was him. Uh, it was like a 20 minute video for Vanity Fair with him deconstructing a scene from Succession. From the um, from the uh, Connor's wedding episode, I was just like, I only oh chewed. He says his name in the first five seconds, but now I'm going to sit and watch the whole twenty minutes because <laughs> <laughs> it was really interesting. Um, uh, the style which Ahern and Cash had to fight tooth and nail for was one of the show's hallmarks. Shot on sixteen mil uh, in the style of kitchen sink dramas, and most importantly, with no laughter track. Uh, Carolina had nearly pulled the plug on more than one occasion after the BBC executive interference, trying to insist on laughter or a uh, live studio audience. Um, but again, she held her grounds. And I, I can't know. Can you imagine a royal family with a studio audience? I was just thinking that. Imagine imagine that done in front of an audience, you know, in, in a set and just three cameras. Just no. wouldn't work. It's It'd hard to... Uh... It's 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 hard to kind of disconnect now because it was so successful. How how much that would have ruined it? Yeah, you, you know, maybe maybe it would have just come out like that, and it would have been okay, and we would have all liked it, but not as much as we do, and and then forgotten. Do you know what I mean? But like, it, but now it just feels like so impossible to picture it that way. Yeah, and it's like imagine shooting on sixteen millimeter film as well when everything would have been shot on video. Like I was watching it going, This is this looks so much like film and really grainy and great. Mm. And I didn't realise that it was I thought, oh what what you know, what were they doing? But yeah, imagine that. Um for the second series they got in Steve Benderlack to direct who also directed League of Gentlemen Apocalypse and Mr. Bean's Holiday, so we <laughs> might hear quite a bit <laughs> from him later down the line. Um and then for the third series, Carolina Hearn took on directing duties herself. Uh, this this felt like it was like the beginning of the end for Laughter Tracks because a lot of stuff around that time uh, was considered starting to get considered outdated or outmoded if if it had a a Laughter Track on it. And it came uh, the whole sitcom scene in the in the nineties and early noughties 
was kind of like that. So it, things that were successful immediately after the royal family, uh, you'd see stuff like Phoenix Nights and uh, The Office, obviously, and Petro not going down that same route. And then mm. that kind of things were never the same again. Obviously, studio audiences were revived for more kind of mainstream, if you like, popular sitcoms, things like Not Going Out and Miranda. But I think once the royal family did it, Mm. then every kind of cult and popular and award-winning sitcom also did it. Yeah, look at League of Gentlemen. They made that move, didn't they, in the third series where they ditched the laughter track and it became more film-like, you know, like Steve was saying earlier, you know, making that kind of jump within a series. Mm. Another person who um, was credited for devising the show was Henry Normal, who wrote a lot with Steve Coogan, we're going to talk about him quite a lot in the next episode, Guy. Um, mm. But in the main, it's thought that the character of Jim Royal was based on Henry Normal's dad. Uh, oh. Ricky, yeah. Uh, Ricky Tomlinson uh, was top choice by Carolina Hearn because she'd seen him in Ken Loach's Raining Stones. You're a Ken Loach fan, aren't you, Guy? Or a am bit. I... I've... Yeah, a, a little bit, but I've not seen Raining Stones, so... So what what she like? I know that there's a little clip of it in this uh, down the back of the sofa documentary, uh, and she said what she loved about him in that is how he could combine humour and pathos. You know, obviously a bit of a, a hallmark of Ken Loach films, anyway. Mm, um, definitely, he could combine humour and pathos in his character. Um, the character of Jim Royal starts as a kind of very lazy, mean spirited, and often cruel. Uh, but there'll always be glimpses of the kind, loving father and husband, uh, which they dot in every now and then to make him, you know, not not just a horrible bastard. <laughs> uh, the catchphrase, my ass was credited to Craig Cash's dad, um, who apparently said it all the time. Uh, the character's the linchpin of the show, and most of the stories revolve around him in one way or the other. And the glasses and the shirt, the armchair, they've all become synonymous with Jim Royal. Uh, Ricky Tomlinson won a National Television Award and British Comedy Award for playing Jim Royal, but lost his BAFTA nomination for Best Comedy Performance in the year 2000 to Carolina Hearn. In fact, three out of the four nominees that year were Royal Family. It was him, Sue Johnson, Carolina Hearn, and uh, Dawn French was the only non-Royal Family um, person to be nominated. In 2004, Jim Royal was voted 11th in Channel 4 poll of the 100 greatest TV characters of all time. Royal Family ran for three series with five specials, the last of which was in 2012. There were more considered, but when Carolina Hearn died of lung cancer in 2016, Craig Cash vowed to never make another episode without her. Um, what's everyone's relationship with Royal Family? I remember at the time not giving it much of the time of day, and it's something that as I've got older, I've, I've respected a lot more and actually watching it this week find genuinely hilarious uh yeah so i i seem to remember loving it at, at the time maybe series two i came in to it um i remember getting um told off at school in college because i had a gym roll t-shirt that said my ass on it and i remember being told i wasn't allowed to wear that t-shirt again along with the people who had fc uk t-shirts so it was <laughs> put in with them <laughs> which obviously was a big early noughties fashion uh, two, two turn of the century touchstones aren't they the french connection <laughs> yeah. and the royal family 
Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But it was so different, though. It felt like so refreshing when, because I remember like you had that thing of when you were, before I watched it and you saw the adverts going, why would I watch a TV show about people watching a TV show? And then it was so funny. And like, I remember watching it with my family and my mum and dad and whatnot, and they loved it. And they weren't always the sort of people you think would watch something like that. So I think it definitely seemed to cross pe- into people who may, may not watch a show like that. Did it strike more of a chord with people in the north than in the south? Because Steve and I, growing up in the southwest, probably I don't know. Like I don't remember us ever talking about the royal family when we were at school. Well, I uh, so it's funny because I I remember basically the conversation in our school being like kind of that looks boring or or mm. or like that looks sort of dreary and like depressing, and I remember thinking that before I watched it. And I, I reckon I must have watched it quite early on because it must have just been on at home. And, and um, I remember being like, I'm secretly really into this. Mm. But like in school, I didn't really talk about it because I was like, oh, I really like that show. And then I uh, and then kind of as, as it went on and it was like, oh, everyone loves this show. It's just good. Um, <laughs> it was a bit more normal, but I, I like really loved it. And probably, I'm pretty sure I saw all of it. Probably not some of those later specials. I don't think I've seen all of them. But I definitely um, saw, I think, all of the original run. Um, But haven't seen it since then. And I really wanted to try and watch it in prep for this, but didn't. Uh, uh, Didn't have the time in the end. But I'm planning on doing it again, just purely because thinking about it again has made me be like, man, that was such a good show. I love the kind of people that you never see that you hear about, like Leggings Lorraine or Beverly Macker, and they build like a picture of these people that you'll never see, but you hear about. The story of Mike Bassett begins with writer Rob Sprackling, uh, who, guy you've already mentioned, uh, he watched The Impossible Job, which was a fly-on-the-wall documentary about England manager Graham Taylor failing to guide England to the 1994 World Cup. And as a big England fan, Sprackling was frustrated at Graham Taylor, but also felt sorry for him. <clears throat> Speaking of the impossible job, you did a, well, we both watched this, didn't we, before the film? Because I think it's kind of, it, it provides a lot of good context. So uh, you've done a little mini dive into the impossible job. Do I not like that? Do I not like that? Yeah, Graham Taylor, An Impossible Job. The Channel 4 documentary from 1994, directed and produced by Ken McGill. It was broadcast on the 24th of January 1994 and had an audience of 6 million people. It takes place over 18 months and follows the England team as they fail to qualify for the 1994 World Cup in the USA. England manager Graham Taylor granted the film crew unprecedented access and eventually it led to his downfall. It became fearless for its uh, Taylorisms. Like you said, Rob, do I not like that? And can we not knock it? Uh, we see as Taylor and his team lurch from one disaster to another. Like you said, it was a main inspiration for Mike Bassett, England manager. you got Phil Neal, the assistant manager, looks permanently confused. He only ever seems to speak back to Taylor and repeat what he says. Um, Lonnie Urquhart, the uh, character who's based on Laurie McMenemy, his three cheers for Ramirez um, was parodying Laurie McMenemy's praise of Justine Fleur, who helped in the defeat of of England, which is one of those bizarre moments uh, in the documentary. Uh, McMenemy was seen as old school and out of touch. Des Walker seems to make mistake after mistake for England, but he's never dropped, a bit like the Rufus Small character is who doesn't score for two years 
The selection of Benson and Hedges makes fun of the absolute dross that managed to get an England cap under Taylor. I I was going to name them, but maybe I shouldn't. Maybe we should protect (laughs) some of these players who managed to get an England cap. Well, you can say the words Keith Curl if you want to, uh, Guy. (laughs) Yeah, I was thinking Stuart Ripley and David White as well. Who the fuck is David White? Taylor's tinkering with the formation was much like Bassett's Christmas pudding. There's a famous sequence when they're playing Norway and he decides to switch to a 3-5-2 without properly training for the uh, for the game with that formation, which he admits afterwards. The documentary broke records for the amount of swearing in it. We had 38 fucks, two shits and one wanker. England trained on an overgrown pitch at one point and there's 500 spectators, which is quite reminiscent of the scene in Brazil when the the footballs are in Lonnie Urquhart's boot. Um, yeah, and you've got Ta- Graham Taylor giving directionless instructions to substitute Nigel Clough during the must-win game against uh, Norway, which is parodied in Mike Bassett. Um, the scene in Mike Bassett, England manager, where Phil Jupiter's journalist tells Bassett to resign is parodied in the exchange between Taylor and journalist Rob Shepard before the game against the Netherlands. That's extraordinary, is that scene. Yeah, it is, and it's you know, and then you can see because I, I I watched the Impossible Job after watching Mike Bassett, and you can see you know how visually and uh, script wise they've just made it look as much as possible like those really uncomfortable press conference moments with uh, with Graham Taylor. Yeah, and all his exchanges with Rob Shepherd are just really quite cringeworthy. Yeah, definitely. Especially when he's telling him to cheer up and come on, cheer up. I'm really looking forward to this. Why aren't you, Rob? <laughs> and it's really like, especially with what goes, what you know, goes on afterwards. Uh, and I just wanted to leave with um, a, a Phil Neal moment that I, that I read about. Um, so he blamed this documentary on ruining his career, but he did get some management jobs afterwards. He was a Man City manager in December 1996. And he was being interviewed by um, someone from the Man City fanzine in his office. But when the interviewer asked him about his time as Taylor's assistant, Neil got pissed off and told him to get out and that they were going to do the interview again. So it led to the interviewer exiting the office, knocking on the door, and Neil asking, who is it? (laughs) So... (laughs) (laughs) As if it had never happened. Yeah, as if it had never happened. I don't know what was going on there, but I think that tells you a lot about Phil Neal and that whole situation. Back to the making of Mike Bassett, writer Rob Sprackling went to co-writer Johnny Smith and pitched the idea of a mockumentary in the in the vein of the impossible job about a buffoonish, underqualified lower league coach getting given the England job and then they set to work about set to work writing it. Uh, Smith the writing process began with Smith finding uh, some of his favourite like ridiculous manager quotes and they made a big long list of them and they kind of just started writing from there. And then they ended up, a lot of those ended up being used for uh, chapter headings in the film. Uh, it took seven years for the film to finally get made after initially having the idea. Uh, Sprackling was fraught with anxiety every time a major tournament rolled around. He'd often think to himself, if we win, my film is dead. But luckily for the film, England's haplessness on the international stage continued all the way up to the film's release. <laughs> uh, Smith and Sprackling persuaded the 
famous music video director Steve Barron to direct. Uh, he had done comedy before, as you said, Guy, in the form of Coneheads. Um, but he'd always turned down films about football that he'd been pitched because as a big football fan himself, he always thought there's no way of getting the feeling of a football match across on the big screen. Uh, when he read the treatment, though, he thought, well, that's how you do it. You keep it real and you keep it in a documentary format. The way This Is Spinal Tap did, there weren't many good films about rock and roll before This Is Spinal Tap, but they pressed every button and this did the same for me. This is, I'm, I'm paraphrasing uh, um, Steve Barron here. Um, so they had a director needed a leading man. They did a screen test with Steve Coogan. They said he was brilliant, but he was too much of a comedian and not old enough. How different a film would this have been with uh, Steve Coogan? Yeah, I can't imagine what it would have been. I would like to see that version, though, but yeah, it would be yeah, interesting. I, I think it would be very Partridge-esque. Mm. Uh, they said yeah. the same thing about when they were suggesting other names, so names like Paul Whitehouse, who'd already done, obviously, his Ron Manager character, so they wanted to veer away from that. When Sprackling suggested Ricky Tomlinson, everyone agreed with Royal Family, huge at the time, and they were all big Royal Family fans, and they thought he'd be the most believable in the role. Uh, Steve Barron said it was even more perfect with him. He can turn on the pathos and make you just warm to him and connect to him. So obviously Steve Barron was seeing the same things in Tomlinson that Carolina Hearn had seen in him a few years earlier. Ricky Tomlinson, who, from what he said about taking the job, didn't seem to do it much out of a love of football, more out of a love of wanting to break into film. He said that when you're from the sort of family that I'm from, work is work. So, I mean, it's slightly, <laughs> slightly damning indictment of taking the film. But he'd love working on a film amidst a slew of TV and... He really loved having his own wardrobe person and having a car sent for him, etc. Uh, Dean Lennox Kelly, who plays Tonko, when being asked about his audition, uh, heard the character was drunk. So uh, the, he heard that his character would be a drunk, so he cancelled a holiday to Amsterdam, uh, drunk a load of beer on the way to his casting. They asked him how good his football was. And in his words, he went into the back garden with Steve Barron's son or nephew and was running rings around this 10-year-old kid, half cut on three cans of Budweiser. The character's meant to be overweight, but he'd just come from doing a uh, movie about hunger strike. Um, so when he was given the role, he went straight to the chippy and like ordered like five things <laughs> and ate them all at once. <laughs> uh, the Impossible Job uh, documentary was a touchstone for the film, so all the actors were asked to watch it, although most of them admitted after that they didn't. Uh, there were characters that were based directly on characters from the documentary. So Bradley Walsh's Yes Man Coach was based on Phil Neal. Phil Jupiter's uh, chippy journalist was based on Rod Shepard of the Today newspaper. Rob Shepard, the the writer for Today, went on to write for the Daily Express and was, was chief football writer for the Daily Express uh, before he was sent to prison for GBH and did a 14-month prison sentence for okay. uh, biting a man on the face, Steve, in a pub that you and I know fairly well, the Raskas in um, Beckenham. That's amazing. Uh, Phil Jackson's character was based loosely on uh, Laurie McMenemy as well from uh, The Impossible Job. And they wanted to get actors who could play football. Uh, so like you said about Bradley Walsh, he used to play football. Um, so that included people like Dean Holness, who'd been an ex-non-league player. And he'd been on Sky One's dream team. As said Terry Kylie, who plays Harpsy, he was Carl Fletcher, like the main character in Dream Team, which was quite a big deal at the time. 
Uh, Dean Lennitz Kelly based his character firmly on Paul Gascoigne, and he knew him from having done the first soccer age with him. Um, oh, wow. England's home games in the movie were at the old Wembley, despite the old Wembley at that point uh, at that point being defunct and about to be knocked down. But the FA really wanted him to film the home games at Wembley uh, to to give it one last hurrah. Um, but doing that proved a lot more <laughs> a lot more difficult than than they'd hoped because the pitch was all like completely they had to get the pitch relaid but they didn't look like all the, all the quotes they got from like professional pitch uh, groundsmen and, and stuff were all coming in far too high for the budget so they ended up getting it done by basically like d- domestic landscapers <laughs> who'd <laughs> never who'd never had to <laughs> Basically, had to ask, "What? Sorry, are you serious? You want us to relay the one meter?" <laughs> Imagine getting that gig. That'd be amazing. Yeah, no. yeah. but the, the the last match. Who remembers what the last match at the old Wembley was? I do. Go on. Uh, England Germany when we lost one nil. When England one nil with Kevin Keegan resigning in the toilet. Wow. Yes. So yeah. that was the last. Was that the last game? That was well. It wasn't the last game because the last game was a friendly between Mike Bassett cast and Mike Bassett crew. Uh, they one of the reasons for them agreeing to play at Wembley uh, to film at Wembley was that they get to play there afterwards. And then That's the stadium cool. was cool. not down. That's cool. Uh, the famous halftime rant scene uh, was filmed all in one take. Nobody saw Tomlinson rehearse. They all just reacted in real time, trying not to laugh cleaning staff at the local Brazilian location thought it was real and started applauding him afterwards. <laughs> um, since then, Tom Linson's had loads of requests from numerous football clubs to give team talks for after, and do after dinner speaking, but he admits that his, his knowledge of football isn't good enough and he could only list half the Liverpool squad. Uh, they hired a guy called Andy Anser, who is an ex-pro, uh, to be the football choreographer, which was quite a new, a new thing for the time. Uh, he was, yeah, the first of his kind on TV or film. He did the same job uh, on Dream Team. Again, another person who worked on Dream Team. He was a consultant. He choreographed a Maradona-style goal from the film, um, which was uh, which they shot on location at the Maracanã in Rio de Janeiro. As if filming at one iconic stadium wasn't enough. Um, and, of course, all the ex-players in the cast were humbled uh, by being able to play at the Maracanã. The cast and crew obviously love working with Pele. Pele's in two scenes. Um, the scene in which uh, Mike Bassett is dancing naked and Pele walks in. They had to do several takes of that because Pele couldn't stop laughing at Ricky Tomlinson. <laughs> <laughs> According to Ricky Tomlinson's biography, autobiography, they became quite good friends afterwards and Ricky Tomlinson took him to a Liverpool match. Wow. Uh, the film was eventually released in September 2001 during England's qualifying campaign for World Cup 2002. The manager at the time was Sven-Goran Eriksson, and he was the first continental appointment, and I hope that England would finally move beyond the need for managers like Mike Bassett. Uh, but in the build-up to England's decisive qualifier against Greece, here we are, Guy, producer Neil Peplow uh, recalls that he was called by a member of Eriksson's team, asking if the players could have a screening of the film the night before... Uh, the Greece game to lift their morale. Uh, so they had the screening, the special screening of the film. This is, you know, the film was a good week into its release by this point. Uh, they had a um, special screening of the film, and then Ricky Tomlinson was on the radio the next morning, uh, the the morning, uh, the day of the match, saying that oh, the players have seen the match now; they're definitely going to win, and the match proved great PR for the film. 
Of course, football fans all know, was it England fans specifically, all know how that match went. Greece 2-1 up in injury timing, in England would be knocked into the playoffs. Um, and at that point, watching the match, uh, Neil Peplow remembered that it's the last minute, Greece are winning, unless we draw, we're out. And I'm thinking, we're stuffed. The film is fucked because if England get knocked out, no one's going to go to the cinema and watch our film because they'd all be <laughs> pissed off with football in general and they'll blame us for showing the movie to the players before the match. Suddenly our film would be the reason that England lost and the distributor was ringing me, but I ignored him and I knew he was going to yell at me for ruining the film, so I just didn't answer the phone. And then Beckham scored his famous free kick <laughs> and the film went on to do quite nicely at the box office in Neil Peplow's words. So, guys, had we seen this film before? Now, I'll just quickly say that I never saw it. For whatever reason, I guess at that point I wasn't particularly a Royal Family fan. Um, I was a massive football fan at that point, but I I kind of still am of the opinion that it's, it's difficult to make a good football film, and I think that m- might have been the reason that I avoided it. I don't know. I To this day, I have no idea why I hadn't seen it up until this point. Yeah, I yeah um yeah I saw it at the cinema. Me and a mate went to see it as a big football fan and a royal family fan. Uh, yeah, I went to go and see it, and I really enjoyed it. When uh, yeah, saw it, saw it at the cinema. I remember my mate who I saw it with. I don't know if he was as keen, but I was quite picky. But yeah, I thought it was good. I saw it at the cinema as well, and uh, absolutely loved it. And it's like a, it's actually a really good memory of the cinema for me, like. You know, it happens every now and again where the whole cinema is just laughing out loud. And it was just such a good experience. And I have for like 20 years been like, I need to watch that again. Because it was such a good experience. And I always was like, oh, that's a great film that is. And if it ever, and it's got to that point now where it's long enough ago that you you bring it up and like a lot of people don't remember it and stuff. And and, uh, and I've always been like, you've got to see it. It's amazing. Um. So it's quite interesting revisiting it. Shall we get into the film then? Yeah, let's do it. Half time in La Bombanera Stadium and England trail Mexico by two goals to nil. Have you heard what the crowd is shouting? Bastards and bastards and bastards and They shouldn't be shouting at me. They should be shouting at you. And do you know why? Because it's in half time and we're two nil down to the Mexicans. Wrong with it. Get out. Fingers out! Where's your bottle gun? I can't pay attention without talking to you. If you don't want to wear the shit off, there's thousands of kids out there who die from the shit on. Back on the field, show me what you can do. Or off home on the plane. You got that? England lose four 0 Mike Bassett, England manager. We open with. Um, a nonsensical football quote from Kevin Keegan, which is, I know what is around the corner, I just don't know where the corner is. We then go to a news broadcast from Norwich Today announcing that Mike Bassett and his Norwich team have won the Mr. Clutch Cup at Wembley. Do you think that they could have picked somewhere else, a a different club rather than Norwich, and it's how synonymous Norwich is with Alan Partridge with another comedy character? I, I just think that it was a bit of a weird club to choose. And also, this Mr. Clutch Cup kind of supposed to be like an auto windscreen style, like a lower league yeah. trophy. What league, you know, like Norwich, 
Yeah, what, what, what league are they meant to be in? Yeah, as a football fan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because they were always like, when I was growing up, either Premiership or Premier League or Championship. They came, went up and down, but are they meant to be League One? Anyway, but I do I do like the name, the Mr. Clutch Cup. So I will, <laughs> I will give it points for, for that. Um, so yeah, we have uh, Norwich leading the game. We have shots of Bassett holding up the injury time board and shouting at the referee. Um, so they've won the Mr. Clutch Cup. We then see the team on an open-top bus celebrating with a few fans before taking a wrong, term, a wrong turn and ended up on a dual carriageway with Mike Bassett giving directions on how to get back to the parade route. This this is the I think this is the funniest bit in the film. It's the bit that made me laugh the most, anyway, going on yeah. to the dual carriageway and then everyone's hair. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it probably, yeah, it's potentially the funniest part of the film. And because it's it's like kind of the first big joke, it's one of the, it's in the first sort of five to ten minutes, so it's like I was really like, ah, oh, yeah, this is brilliant, this film. Do you know what I mean? Because I was yeah. like, if it stays this funny, this is perfect. Yeah, it's great, and the hair is a really nice touch. <laughs> yeah, I like the shots as well that make it like the O.J. Simpson chase from like a helicopter. <laughs> I thought it was excellent. Um, so then we find out that England manager Phil Cope has nearly died after suffering a heart attack. The apt headline from the Daily Star is Can't Cope with a shot of him on a stretcher with tubes sticking out of his mouth. I really like that gag. It's so insensitive and cruel that it's just on point. <laughs> For the Daily Star, yeah. Yeah, because it's a right close-up with the red blanket and there's just something really comedic about that. Yeah, so there are three World Cup qualifying games left and the FA need to find a replacement manager. The voiceover from Martin Bashir, who obviously was famous from another documentary in real life. The shamed Martin Bashir. Sorry, Rob, the shamed Martin Bashir. Like, I know he's he's a kind of big investigative journalist name at the time. I don't know if he works fully. It sounds a lot, particularly in this first bit, like he can't really be asked with his delivery. In the voiceovers, do you think that? I think it. I just didn't think he needed to be part of it. I think the documentary could have functioned as a kind of bit more fly on the wall type, you know, like in the office or Spinal Tap, where it's, it just sort of follows the action. And but also because he's he's not a comedian, he is a, he is what he's trying to be. It's just a bit st- straight what he's doing, and therefore doesn't really add anything. Yeah, I think that there was a show from a similar time that had another disgraced person in it, people like us with Chris Langham, who would go into the thick of it, which isn't a great mention, I admit. But he was, all you ever heard in that show was his voice. It was, each week would be some different profession would be like, it might be an estate agent. and But the, there would still be jokes about the interviewer, even though you only ever heard his voice and bits might happen. And I loved I loved people like us. Yeah, that's a show that I used to really enjoy, and obviously very difficult to watch now. Like the first mm-hmm. series, the thick of it. Yeah, exactly. But I think I think either you don't need an interviewer in it, like you said, Steve. Do you know what I mean? Or you you have a comedian or a comic sort of actor in there to to do it. Yeah, I can kind of see. It. I can imagine the conversation that they they went let's just get the real thing and that will just make it feel really real. And then the subject of the interview will be the funny bit. 
and mm. that probably makes sense when you're having that conversation. But it's just it, when you're watching it, it just it just I don't know. He, I guess he's not a big enough part of it. Like they don't because the I guess the problem is they've got all these reporters in the press conferences who are doing the same job. Yeah. So it's kind of, it just doesn't need to happen, basically. Yeah. I wonder if it's one of those ideas that they just got stuck with and then it's hard to see your way out of it, isn't it, when you get in the middle of yeah. an idea. It's like, well, we have to do that because we've thought of it now. So, yeah, the voiceover tells us um, over the next year, the cameras will be following the new manager. So now we're in a meeting with the FA, which is actually, I, I enjoyed the, the meeting. I thought it was a good one. It's a good those people needed to be sent up at that point. Mm. Uh, yeah. Pierce, upon positive, the old men at the FA. And I recognised a couple of um, couple of sitcom stalwarts. And now you've got George from Men Behaving Badly is one of the old men at the FA. And you've got uh, Bob from Teachers is also there. And yeah. one of them's drawing a picture of a cock on their uh, notepad. Yeah. Which, that's always going to make me laugh. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you have the uh, meeting... Um, with the FA, who are trying to find a new manager to take us to the World Cup. They phoned round Italy, France and Spain, but no, one's, no one wants the job. He rhetorically says, so you know, we're going to have to start looking. Someone says, Scandinavia? No, England. He says with dismay. They come up with a number of names for people who are unsuitable for the job. So these are kind of riffing on Sir Alex Ferguson, because you've got a Scottish manager. The Liverpool manager's big-headed, who I think is meant to be Brian Clough or a Brian Clough-type figure or too busy at the moment, but maybe next time. That's the Aston Villa manager, so I thought you'd be pleased with that, Rob. Um, the Sunderland manager's in prison, which I did like that when someone said, oh, when are you at the game on Saturday or something? That was yeah. quite a funny <laughs> bit. <laughs> None of the England managers in the Premier League want the job, so now they're looking down at the Championship. So that makes us think that Norwich are in the Championship, despite being in the Mr Clutch Cup. Norwich manager Mike Bassett is in line for the England job. The press are gathered outside Bassett's house. He opens the cu- uh, curtain, start bollock naked, and shuts them very quickly as the flash bulbs go. He then comes outside wearing nothing but what looks to be a tea towel. He's asked if he's a new England manager. He tells them to forget the rumours. He's the manager of Norwich City. His son comes out. Uh, out with the phone to tell his dad he's got the England job. Fucking great. Yeah, then we have a talking head with uh, Kareem Bassett, Mike's wife, played by Amanda Redman that we mentioned earlier. She's, so she's talking about his career. The other thing I love I love about that scene is the, the quick cut, jump cut montage of all the pictures of him over the years with his different haircuts. I love any kind of jump cut montage of, of similar to like the Garth Marenghi paperback covers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. Funny haircuts will never not be funny. Yeah. And I thought some of the photos looked quite good. I thought they got what some of them look like they've been printed out on the day, but some of them look genuinely Good and genuinely of the time, I thought. So it turns out, so they, she's talking about his career. They met in 1975 when Doncaster loaned him to Crew. She was worried they might have to go back to Doncaster, but Crew said they could keep him. Then you have the line, what was it that you attracted you to him? The glamour, which was quite a nice <laughs> bit. Um, I like stuff like that. It's very on the nose, but... Some of the um, some of the old goals that they're using in the old football footage. I'd love to be in the archive researcher on this uh, on this yeah. film. Yeah, because they, they dig out some really funny stuff. Yeah, there's... really funny old football like old football gaffes that I'd never seen before. Yeah, I think like at this point in the film, it's really nice. I think the first sort of act of the film 
It's about is it about it's about an hour and a half, isn't it? And so mm. for the first probably half hour, it's um, it's really nice. It, it felt really interesting to compare it to. You know what we were saying earlier about how things have got a bit more cinematic and stuff. What's come with that is that things have become a bit more dramatic and a bit more kind of that that pathos element is is stronger now. And that's like fine, and that's good, and things. Sh- it's it's good that things move forward, but also, it's actually quite refreshing when you see something a bit older, and it's just like it's just joking all the time, and and you know, it's just this at this point in the film, I was like, oh, this is so nice to just watch something that basically every line is is either a setup or a punchline. Yeah, and and it and it just you know, regardless of how strong they are, there's something nice about that pace. And it's, it, yeah, like you say, it's all quite fast moving in that first 10 minutes. And that's obviously to reel everyone in. And that's, mm. uh, I'd made a note at this point that I'd laugh more in that first 10, 15 minutes than I had in all three of the other films that we've done <laughs> so far put together. Because um, it is just set up, punchline, set up, punchline. And there's some brilliant, um, some of my favorite lines from the films are in that first bit as well. The, the Tuesday is his dialysis day is an absolutely <laughs> brilliant line. And <laughs> dad was like a father figure to me. Brilliant. Yeah. That's a that's a, yeah a uh, Abraham Zucker style life. Yeah, yeah. There's the there's there's some jokes that are quite obvious, but I really enjoyed them. I like the way they were delivered and edited. Like there's the one of the the guy in the wheelchair going going, we're gonna fucking walk it like that, and yeah, it really yeah, made yeah, me yeah. laugh. Did those bits, and you're like, yeah, I can see that joke coming, but they're delivered so well in such a good style that it, I was really enjoying this section of the film. So Mike travels to London for his first day in the new job. He meets the chief exec who goes through some of the responsibilities of the role and tells him that if he ever needs him and he's not in, just put a note under the door. Mike is introduced to the press. Um, he tells him his ambition is to win the World Cup. A journalist played by Phil Jupiter, who I don't remember ever seeing acting in, in anything before, but I thought he was pretty good in this. Yeah. Yeah, he does all right, doesn't he? Yeah. Phil Jupiter's character calls Bassett out on whether he really believes that England can win the World Cup. You know, Bassett says, you know, we invented football, we gave it to the world, and I'm going to bring it back. And everyone applauds in the in the press bot in the yeah the press room. Bassett now has to employ a coach and assistant manager. They are Dave Dodds and Lonnie Urquhart, who he's worked with for over ten years. Dave Dodds always positive, never says no unless you want him to, which uh, <laughs> another good line. We next meet uh, the assistant manager Lonnie Urquhart, who, like we said before, is based on Laurie McMenemy. One of my favourite characters in the film, I think, is uh, is Lonnie Urquhart. He's more like to say, I don't know. No, this this might be a big uh, a big disagreement here. I think that used car salesman bit is funny for a bit, and then they just keep repeating the same joke over mm. and over again, and it just quickly loses. And I I don't think they've utilised Phil Jackson enough there. Yeah, so, who is a, a a funny guy. I I totally agree. Actually, just just to make a more general point as well, this is sort of the beginning of where the film starts to get a little bit lost for me. Mm. Um, but it's still fun. But like, I think I agree. At this point, I'm really enjoying that character, the used car salesman who he has to relate everything back to cars. It feels really funny, and I I agree, Rob. Like, it, it feels like eventually you just kind of go, "Oh, where's this going?" He's just going to keep doing it. Um, and it kind of gets a bit irritating because you can see it coming every time. Mm. Um, but but also, I thought Bradley Walsh was um, was a bit of a 
a bit wasted almost. And I think the problem was, I could see what, what they were doing was making his character be a nothing guy. And clearly, like, that's sending up something from the from that documentary but because i haven't seen that documentary i didn't i wasn't relating to it specifically i was just sort of generally seeing him as a character i was a bit like why is he here because i see what i I get the joke that he's a bit of a kind of just yes yes you know but but then that that kind of feels like it doesn't amount to anything other than you're kind of like oh yeah he's still just here he just sort of sat there in every scene um yeah and and i think just at this point of the proceedings i started to get a bit kind of it felt like they introduced too many people at the same time. Did you find that? Mm. Yeah. They rush into they it, don't like, they? the whole team and the staff, and, and you're just like, well, I can't keep track of this. can't remember any of the players' names, aside mm. from, like, Wackett and Tom- Tonko. I mean, if it, yeah, if we're going to get into that, are we going? Yeah. yeah I think... But yeah, I, I get what you mean about the Lonnie Urquhart character. I think maybe it's Philip Jackson's performance did make me laugh, but they do rely on it too much. I think when it gets later on and they get to Brazil, there's some funny moments with that character that come out. If they if they'd sacked him before they'd got to the World Cup or something, and he was just you know, you only had to hear that joke a couple of times, like two or three times, and they they've made that point enough then. But because he's just still. All the way through the film, it's like, oh, it's been 10 minutes since we've, five or 10 minutes since we've done a used car joke. Let's put in another one. It's like, yeah. come on, there's, there's got to be more. Whereas at least with Bradley Walsh's characters, you've got the, as well as the, the yes man side of it, you've also got the hapless side of it. I did skipping ahead massively here, but the stuff with him getting mugged off by the street kids in Brazil is, is really funny. Yeah. And actually, he, he's quite a, quite a good physical performer and quite, and, you know, quite funny in a slapstick situation there. I don't think yeah. they use that enough. Like, so we meet Lonnie Urquhart, who's now a used, a used car salesman. Bassett is trying to convince him to become his assistant manager. Urquhart gives him um, a lot of spiel about the new Deu. That'll be the Deu, which I did like. Um, Mike asks him what he needs to do to get him to take the England um, assistant manager's job. In the next scene, we've seen that Mike Bassett's driving the Deu. He's on his way to Sunderland to visit footballing legend Kevin Tonkinson based on Paul Gascoigne. The car breaks down outside the pub that Bassett is meeting Tonkinson at and uh, Mike tells us in the car that he's managed Tonkinson at Colchester. And even though he had offers to go to one of the big clubs, he didn't leave and help them get promotion. Mike believes in paying his debts and believes that Tonkinson can win England the World Cup. So now we have what I think is meant to be a spoof of the dentist chair but in a ropey looking pub somewhere in Sunderland yeah yeah, we cut to Tonkinson laid out on a pool table with daffodils in his underpants and beer poured on his face by a gang of lads we have a funny kind of freeze frame of Kevin Tonkinson's face in the sort of middle of this that made me laugh Um, yeah then we cut to Tonkinson telling Mike Bassett that he's still got it and that he won't let him down we're now at Bisham Abbey for England's training session before the game with Poland. And this is where we get to meet some more of the team. So we've got Captain Gary Wackett, the footballing hard man, bit of a Vinnie Jones type. The problem is red cards after 26 international games. He's only completed five. <laughs> the Gary Wackett stuff does make me laugh, I have to say. Wacko, the guy who plays him, turned up recently in a programme called The Curse, which was the... Um... The comedy about the 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 gold 
the gold robbery with the guys from People Just Do Nothing. Yes, I've and seen he's, that. He's the cop oh, yeah. chasing them to Spain, and he's he's really funny in that. Yeah, I think I've seen some of that. Maybe need, yeah, I need to watch all of it. Well, I love it. They're, they're training at Bisham Abbey, aren't they? Which is a, that's such a bygone era. Thing. Like England's England have moved on so much in the past twenty years. I think about like how how the FA's kind of PR machine has has moved on so much. Um, but but it, that that joke at the beginning of the training session at Bisham Abbey, where he says everyone everyone born in the first half of the year go on this side. That was great. On that side. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I I I'm really enjoying the film up to this bit, and then it gets to a certain yeah. point where, which we'll get to, where for me it loses its way. Um, so you got Rufus Smalls, England's all-time top goal scorer, and and a captain on question of sport before he missed a penalty against Portugal in the Euro quarterfinals and hasn't scored in two years. And that is predicting the future, guy, because he misses a penalty against Portugal in the quarterfinals, skying it over the bar. Just mm-hmm. like David Beckham did three years after this film came out in uh, <laughs> in Portugal at the Euros against Portugal in the quarterfinals. I mean, that got the way they they set up that penalty. It just looked exactly like Beckham's penalty, yeah. but three years before. And this isn't the only time they predict the future. I'll be chiming in with one of those later on. Oh, brilliant. Look forward to that. Um, yeah, we've got Steve Harper, who's a bit of a David Beckham type. Alan Massey, who... I thought was a bit Gary Neville. Um, mm. But I've read things where they said that he was based a bit on Graham Lasseur. Oh, yeah, because he was a little bit clever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, was a th- there was a line in one of the things where, where it said about Graham Lasseur, you may have O-levels, but it doesn't mean anyone likes you. Because <laughs> I think he was a Guardian reading footballer, wasn't he? Graham Lasseur. Graham Lasseur levels. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Um, yeah, so Bassett has a meeting with the players where he tells them he's an old-fashioned manager who writes the team down on the back of a fag packet and plays a simple 4-4-2 system. In the dressing room, Mike tells Wacko to lead the team out. Um, Wacko yells, let's fucking kill him, and then punches a hole in the wall, <laughs> uh, which, I, which, again, I like that. It's, yeah, it's funny. Then we have, I think, I think the football sequences are pretty good in this film. Compared to some of the ones I've seen in football movies, these are some of the best, I think. Uh, yeah, well, the biggest problem that they've got is um, using archive of football is that everything's going to be in four by three and they're making a widescreen film for the yeah. cinema. So I, don't, I think it took like football working in sports television. It, it, it wasn't until about kind of 2004 that everything went from four by three to 16 by nine. And so the way... Um, Steve Barron gets round it is by using all those Brian De Palma style split screens, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, which, which I think, yeah, that kind of works. That's kind of an interesting way of uh, of doing it. They do do a good job. I can't feel. Like, I don't feel like I can criticize the 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 filmmakers, especially in the sort of age that they were doing it in. But it, it at the same time, it does for me. It is a problem with the film that. They're, but the best that they are basically able to do is not as immersive as you want it to be in terms of like the drama around the games that you're following is a lot coming from the bench and stuff like um 
it just this goes it's just hard you know like ideally you just really want to see the game you want to see that drama play out a bit better uh this goes back to what he was saying though wasn't it that he you know he'd always turned down football because he he felt like it was impossible and the only way around it was to make it a, to make it a documentary but I, I i think he's got a point i i actually think talk of the impossible job i think it it is impossible to put football on the on, on the big screen yeah and i think when you watch the impossible job there's so much of the documentary that's from graham taylor's point of view because they, they mic'd him and the bench up particularly him so you're kind of watching these games almost from his point of view with the cameras like just like below looking up at him and then you're kind of going into bits of the game but more point of view on him so i don't know if it's partly to do with that because i think it is hard to get um football right in films i remember watching a film about george best and the football sequences in that was terrible yeah i think that like the the, the reason i imagine it works in that documentary is because everyone's already seen that football. You know what I mean? Like, you know, the story of whatever is playing out. Mm. And so to see a different view, which is the view of what the managers and coaches are talking about together is really like, Oh, I want to know about that. But in a film where you're like, I'm getting invested in the story of England qualifying and playing in the world cup and all that stuff. You're like, you just have the football fan thing where you're trying to follow it. And there's only so much they're able to do. 30 seconds into the game, Gary Wackett goes for the ball and smashes a player through the advertising hoarding, which again, I thought this was pretty good. The ref waves play on. Then Tonka, uh, Kevin Tonkinson, scores and England take the lead with 20 minutes to go. Disaster strikes and they lose 2-1. Bassett comes out to speak to the press, to ask him a lot of negative questions. He tells them to be positive, the second in the group, and they only have to win one game out of the last two to qualify for the World Cup. We have an interview with an anonymous player who says if they don't qualify for the World Cup, they'll have to be spending the summer as guest presenters for Channel 5, and no one wants that. Which <laughs> which reminded me of our chat during Staggered Rob, where you were talking about kind of jibes against Sky Television. This is very much the yeah. time of Channel 5 being a load of shit. Yeah. It was it was very much, yeah, a, a joke of its time. Let's give uh, give Channel 5 a bashing. And, um, and then quickly after, there's a shot of... Um, him watching Ground Force, isn't there, with Charlie uh, Charlie Dimmock? Yeah, again, very much uh, of of its time. Yeah, yeah. So they're watching the Mike and the coaching staff are going to watch the game back when it turns out that Dave Dodds's wife has recorded Ground Force over the the playback of the game, which again and was a. And at first, they think it's changing rooms. Yeah, everything about yeah. that felt felt such of its time. The fact that it could be recorded over. Yeah. And the fact that it was with change rooms, oh no, it's ground force. You know, everything was like, wow, this is all blast from the past stuff. But that feels like a conversation from the royal family as well, though, doesn't it? Yeah, it like does. Yeah. Like, oh, why are you watching change rooms? No, it's not, it's ground force. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Confusion. Um, so Bassett chases the chief exec in as he wants to speak to him. Chief exec says he's too busy and just put a note under the door. Bassett says, I have. They remove the doormat to see it's littered with notes. There's one here from Ron Greenwood, he says. It's, yeah. yeah, I mean it that is really good. Yeah. That that for me is probably the best joke actually of the of the thing when he reads it out and uh, do you know I I remember when when they set that up at the beginning I was like, "Oh, that felt like they got it slightly wrong to me. I found it funny, but um just the wording of it he said like 
you know, if you need to get me, you can always put a note through my door or something like that. Mm. Whereas I felt like the 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 joke should have been, um, you know, I'm your I'm your chairman. I'm here. Uh, I'm here anytime, anytime you need me, no matter how small it is. Always feel free to slip a note under my door. You know what I mean? Just, yeah. There's a kind of really clear kind of set up and punch there. They didn't quite land, but then that payoff afterwards that they've all been going under the thing is so funny. Mm. Yeah, especially um, that that was really good. Yeah, especially when he says, oh, there's one from Ron Greenwood. How about dropping Mick Shannon? Yeah, do it. <laughs> yeah, do it. Yeah, yeah, so good. <laughs> I really like that. So we have an interview with Dave Dodds, who just agrees with everything that uh, Mike Bashir says. And then th- I think this is a point now for me where the film starts to kind of take a misstep, which is Mike and the team go to the Sports Science Institute, hoping it's going to transform yeah. the team. It's weird, and this is a very dated this bit. I mean, they're, they're kind of taking the piss out of like the the new innovations um, that are now so commonplace. You know that yeah. that's why that joke's aged so badly because mm. actually, no, you can't have any kind of successful team at any level without some kind of sports science. Yeah, exactly. And it all just feels really kind of silly and not grounded. Where the film up to this yeah. point feels really grounded. Yeah, I, and I feel like they could have picked a funnier player than Mark Lawrenson to be the third um, yeah. person that they're trying to emulate. You know what yeah. I mean? Because they, they start with Pele, but, they do Pele, Maradona, and Mark Lawrenson, we ran out of money. It's, it's like, yeah, it's it's a great joke structure, isn't it? It's just that, yeah, yeah Mark Lawrenson, that, yeah, the, there was a potentially better option, but it was a, it was a funny gag, you know, like we ran out of money. But yeah, I, yeah, I totally agree with this bit. I was a bit like, oh, what? What's going on now? Also, it's um, it's just really, it's just not very good pacing, because you've you've done a lot of setup before you've got to a football match, and now you've finally got to an actual football match, and they've gone off on a tangent, and you're like, I really need a bit of momentum here, and you're kind of killing it. Yeah, and I think one of the things for me is that the build up to this feels so kind of real. You know, it feels almost like the thick of it or something like that, where you kind of people in rooms and offices and, you know, meetings, which essentially is kind of what football's about up until you get onto the pitch. And then you've got this bit where we're going to sports science bit and it all feels like you've got, you know, the roof of small character in a giant zorbing ball because he's scared of the ball. You've got your sort of German scientist, you know, going through everything and this is what we're going to do. And it just feels so kind of on the nose and unoriginal. Yeah. And let's have a laugh at sports science where I think you're right, Steve. I think we lose momentum where it's like, right, what's going to happen next? What piece of action are we going to get? And then we're at this bit for the next 10 minutes. Yeah. And then we have the following day that we've got a number of players who are in the physio's room. And then we have the old gag that the physio is a sex offender. You know, Alan Massey has got an injury in his wrist, so he tells him to take his underpants off. That old chestnut. <laughs> yeah, I've I've written that exact thing. Yeah, classic doctor trousers off joke. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, is, yeah. Um, yeah, seven players are injured, so Bassett needs to pick a new team for the Belgian game. His PA, his PA hands him the team sheet. There's 28 team that there's 28 names on the team sheet, and he's only picked six. Included are two names that Mike doesn't recognise. They're Tony Hedges from York City and Ron Benson from Plymouth Argyle. I must say that's one of my favourite jokes in the film as well. Benson and Hedges, and and also just seeing them and they're just like two old blokes. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was really good. 
there's just those moments where there's such good like that that coach going down the motorway and then the letters under the thing and and Benson and Hedges and there's a few others where you're like oh man if it had been that strong the whole way through it would be an absolute riot the whole way through wouldn't it yeah because yeah. there's there's a bit isn't the way it cuts to the bench and either Benson or Hedges gets up and starts screaming he's like all right all right Tony calm down you know, such a nice bit is that. And then the way they're warming up and they're overweight and old and they've got the names on the back of the shirt and such a good bit. Oh, we also have the press conference that's quite nice where he has to face the press and the you know, the quizzing him about the shock inclusion of Benson and Hedges, you know, the third division players, one of them's forty six, and Mike says, Well, you know, I've always said if you're old enough, you're good enough. Which is such a good line. <laughs> <laughs> that whole the whole section's taking piss out of football cliches, isn't it? It's the names on the back of a fag packet. You know, if you're old yeah. enough, you're good enough. Yeah, because that's what they kept saying about. I know it's a couple of years after, but the amount of times um, that was said about Wayne Rooney when he yeah. was got into the England squad at seventeen is such yeah. a boring cliche. I like the. I love the. Because um, you're speaking about the uh, the Belgium match where they do the uh, headline Brussels three sprouts nil which is a direct reference to Swedes 2 turnips nil with the classic uh, Graham Taylor turnip head. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I remember that scaring me as a kid, that seeing that picture of the turnip, Graham Taylor's a turnip head and asking my mum, like, who's that? <laughs> Just awful looking back on that now. But yeah. Um, yeah, so England play Belgium away. They lose 3-0. The anonymous player from earlier is now joined by two others who doubt if they'll qualify for the World Cup. Some are checking if they've got Irish grandparents so they can jump ship. Um, <laughs> and then they're joined by another player asking if they've got room for one more. Um, yeah, and then we cut to the Bassett home where Karen and her son are talking about how difficult life is at the moment and they're getting called names such as Licorice Allsort. They can't walk down the street without someone shouting drop Tonka or drop Smalls here and kids start throwing eggs at the house. You know, the son's been bullied at school. Some lads tried to set fire to his trousers, which is a funny line. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mike goes to see his son Jason. He's ripped all the football posters off his wall. and Someone has written wanker on his forehead in permanent marker. Karine walks out and Mike gets a phone call. Tonka's been arrested for drink driving and Mike drops him, but Tonka begs for forgiveness and he's back in the team. Yeah, because we have the press conference, don't we, where um, Bassett reveals that he's decided to give Tonka another chance. Yeah, <laughs> that's ahead of the Slovenia game, isn't it? Where they do a um, <clears throat> a Sky Sports uh, this take with the with the four four two graphics. Yeah, uh, the over elaborate. But if you're going to do an over elaborate graphics joke, not a good idea in two thousand and one, where Brass Eye is doing it best it will ever be done yes totally 100 yeah. percent. I, I i literally thought that as it was happening i was like ah oh, this is this is like a poor man's brass eye basically that, that that was kind of one of the massive things about brass eye was just the outrageous things uh graphics yeah 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 brilliant it's 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 also tough as well because graphics are exactly the sort of thing that dates every year you know, like you probably watched this in 2002 and it probably felt already like it had changed. And so it's quite hard on a rewatch to judge that, isn't it? To to judge how how well observed that was and stuff. But mm. um, yeah. Well, that's it. You only have to watch sort of Monday night football clips from five years ago. No, that's already starting to look a yeah. little bit dated compared to now, you know. So it just shows what 20 odd years ago looks like. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, Bassett says he's going to drop the 4-4-2 and they're going for a, a 3-5-1-1, similar to the Terry Venables uh, England formation during the United Six. So, yeah, England are playing Slovenia in a must-win game. Gary Wackett is sent off for a two-footed challenge and beating up an opposition player. England get a penalty with 10 minutes to go and Bassett tells Smallsy to take it. Put it away, son. Puts it over the bar. I like that joke. I like the fact that he tells him to, you know, it's such a funny bit. England draw 0-0. Luxembourg beat Turkey 2-0, which means England get to go to the World Cup. I love Luxembourg have a player called Fledermaus. <laughs> I missed that. Which is German for bat. Oh, right. <laughs> but it's just funny because, yeah, Fledermaus is, is a great name. It is. Such a football. Because, and then because they ask it, don't they ask him about, um, in, one of, in one of the press conference bits afterwards, they ask Ryan Fassett about the, about the players. And he says, yeah, that, I'm really proud of all of them to a man, especially young Flader. <laughs> <laughs> I do like that bit when they're all cheering for Luxembourg. And like you say, when he's praising the, the, the Luxembourg players. It's, it's such a funny bit. That's another great bit is that. There's so many good bits in it, but it just, I don't know. We'll get to that. So now we have the recording of the World Cup song featuring Liz and Jenny from Atomic Kitten. This is a great World Cup song. I would love this if this was yeah. a an actual <laughs> World Cup song. No, I, honestly, this is better than any anything from around that time. Certainly better than James Corden and Dizzy Rascal. Yeah, certainly, certainly better than um, than uh, Ant and Deck and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, it, I think it's a really good, a really good song. I, I um, I did think uh, this bit again. So. You can see all the brainstorming that's gone in, and this, just like the sports science bit, is like, oh, your heart sinks when it begins. Basically, even even if the bit's good and funny or whatever, my heart is like, oh, we're still not going to go to the World Cup yet. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> it's like it's something really, it's really interrupting, and it's quite, it's essentially those bits they feel quite sketchy, don't they? You know, oh, here's here's another football bit. Um, which I guess would make a documentary, but it's just like story-wise, you're just desperately trying to like move forward. And uh, it, I did find this bit. I was just kind of hoping it would be quick. I can't believe it's taken us this long for me to crowbar a uh, one of my connections in. Yeah, go on then. I I have worked with Keith Allen quite a lot when I first started working in TV. What was he like? Can you tell us a bit about what working with Keith Allen was like? I, for the most part, really enjoyed it. Yeah. But like I say, I, that I do like that England World Cup song. It's yeah, it's on my head, son, not off my head, son. That's the <laughs> yeah. right. So now we're finally in Brazil for the World Cup. England arrive at the airport at the same time as the Scottish and Irish teams, and a fight soon breaks out. I do like this sequence. Um, it's good. It's, yeah, thought it's funny. And then we have a a, a a cameo from Pele that we mentioned before. He's asked who's going to win the World Cup. He lists all sorts of teams, but never England, which was a good yeah. little bit. Um, England are drawn with Egypt, Mexico, and Argentina. Lonnie Urquhart is fuming as his higher cart is an Opal and not a Vauxhall Amiga like he asked for. 
in the hotel. Mike lays down the rules to the players. There's no late nights, no partying, and no girls. They're in someone else's country, so be respectful. And then we have a bit of old-school racism from Lonnie Urquhart. Well, that, this is the one time where he's doing a joke that isn't about used cars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's, I don't know, it, it's funny because it kind of comes out of nowhere, but obviously it's very, very offensive. Yeah, well. yeah. It fits. I think it does fit in with the character, but I think if you'd had yeah. more of this earlier, earlier on, rather than we're in the final half an hour of the movie, and then this is when we finally get a joke from Lonnie Urquhart that isn't car related. Another cameo. It's your dad's favorite female sports presenter, Gabby Logan, with yeah. Barry Venison, but without the hair. And they go at this point when they did, and they're doing the satellite delay joke, which could have been so much better. And this is another one of these examples, Steve, that you were talking about, where if they'd have just done another pass in it. It was really strange. Yeah. It's the two, it's the two Ronnie's mastermind joke. Yeah. This that's is, what well, that's what first do. of all, that's a bit of an issue. It's a very famous joke. Mm. Like yeah. that's, that's, it's one of the most famous British sketches there is. And so I think it's a bit odd to do it really in the first place, even though, it's so much fun. You and you, can, it's kind of endlessly funny because you can just always put a new environment, and it's always going to be funny. But mm. like, it is the first thing everyone's going to think of watching that. It's like, oh, they've nicked that off that, and and but but then like the second thing was just like it wasn't. There was no joke. The joke was just that it was delayed. There was no. The whole point of the two Ronnies thing is is you say is set up, and then the previous answer is the it creates a new meaning. It's really funny to see that happen and see it play out. And even though you know exactly, it's so it's so kind of laboured, but that's the point, and it's just still fun. Mm. But like with that, you're like with this one, it was like what you're so you're you're ripping off the thing, but not doing the joke. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> really not, not having the balls to follow through on it. It would have been so much better if they'd have just ripped it off completely. But at yeah. least at least made it a proper structured joke. But they just seem to abandon it halfway through. Yeah, it's odd. We're on the way to the first match against Egypt. England draw nil nil with uh, Egypt in what is. Looks to be a pretty boring match. The players are getting onto the coach while being abused by the England fans. Bassett stops to speak to the fans to ask if they've actually got anything constructive to say. Then they actually come. I like this bit. They come yeah. up with a number of ta- tactical switches that should help the team. And Mike tells them to fuck off. Yeah, it's good. That bit. Mike and Dodsey are watching the news where the England supporters are fighting with riot police. They realise that one of them is uh, Captain Gary Wackett, and the riot police mm-hmm. run away from him. Um, Mike phones Karen. His son has had his eyebrows shaved off because of the draw with Egypt. Karen leaves with the son Jason for her sister. On the training pitch, Mike has got a new plan for the Mexico game. The Christmas pudding, as it was known, is gone, and they're now going to try the 3 1 2 1 2 1 formation. <laughs> and I couldn't be bothered to count at the time, but is that too many players? No, it's enough. I counted. No, it is enough. <laughs> I. I, I I wasn't <laughs> past counting by that point. So it turns out they don't have any footballs as they're in the back of Lonnie Urquhart's hire car and he's gone off to do some shopping. So Dodsey tries to get the ball some children, but he doesn't. So they end up having to play with an imaginary football. <laughs> I, I laughed at the, yeah, like I said before, of uh, Bradley Walsh getting mugged off by the kids in the car park. That was that was funny. Yeah, it's a good bit. It's, it's a really funny bit of it. That he's that they're in the boot of his car in the first place is a it's just such a kind of low rent. What happens if you're going for like a kickabout, and and uh, then yeah, then 
him getting mugged off by the little Brazilian kids is really good. That is, yeah, it is a really good little bit of that. Yeah, yeah, enjoy, I enjoyed that bit. Um, so now we're probably coming to what is probably one of the most famous scenes from the film. Halftime against Mexico and England are 2-0 down. And this is where Mike Bassett unleashes a tirade of abuse and expletives at the players. Um, and then they lose 4-0. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good jump, that joke. Yeah. That's a good jump, yeah. Uh, in the press conference, the press savage Mike and he leaves calling them wankers. It's nearly 4am and we have grainy CCTV footage of Tonka kicking a woman out of his room. It turns out that she's um, a pre-op trans woman and uh, Tonka is shouting all these slags of blokes. He wakes Mike up and asks if he's had uh, someone in the room. Tonka denies it and says that he was sleepwalking. At this point, the woman walks back in to pick up her things. Tonka denies it and saying that he's never seen her before in his life. Uh, Bassett drops Tonka from the team and Tonka breaks down crying again, begging for forgiveness. And then as the England um yeah, as the England fans shout for Bassett to be sat, he calls an emergency meeting with the players. Mike asks Dodsey to list the positives from the last game, and he says that those Mexicans were bloody brilliant, weren't they? <laughs> <laughs> and this is where Lonnie Cat in one of my favourite bits continues and says, come on, lads, let's give it three cheers for Ramirez. So that, that, <laughs> that Ramirez was bloody great, wasn't he? <laughs> three cheers for Ramirez. Yeah, he's not happy, he's not Bassett. He calls Lonnie out, says he's a useless coach, he's a bigot. And that day that day we sold him is an absolute fucking disgrace. Uh, that final comment is the last straw, and Lonnie Urquhart punches him uh, and Urquhart is sacked. So Mike is in the hotel bar, drowning his sorrows when Tonka apologises for letting him down. He offers him a drink. Uh, Bassett doesn't want one. He's on antidepressants. So Tonka convinces him, you know, one can't harm. So he orders two pints of lager and two flaming Sambucas. And this is when we (laughs) cut to Mike Bassett dancing on the bar in his boxers. This is the next predicting the future bit because this is very Sam Allardyce reminiscent. <laughs> yes, with his pints of wine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And do you know what song he's dancing to uh, on the bar? Oh, no, go on. He's dancing to a song called uh, "Bushes" by Marcus Nikolai, and it's the uh, it's the Norman Cook uh, remix, uh, and it's a song I absolutely love. And I kind of because I was waning a bit at this point, I was like, I'm not really enjoying this anymore. And then that song came on, I was like, oh. This is one of my favourite songs from uh, the early 2000s. Um, uh, it's got a great video as well. I wonder if Steve Barron directed that video, actually. Might have to look that one up, but yeah. Glad it gave you the, the boost you needed, uh, especially <laughs> as uh, Pele enters the bar, being filmed for a TV show where he talks about how it's great, how football is bringing nations together, and then he spots that it's the English and quickly leaves. And then we have the, the chief exec from the FA comes down to remonstrate with Mike. He gets up on the bar. Bassett tries dancing with him and they both fall off as the, the flashes of the cameras go and it makes the the daily the daily red top newspapers. Mike has to face the press. He tells him he's had to make one of the hardest decisions that he's ever had to make in his life. He's decided to carry on as the England manager. <laughs> I love that there's some, there's some great defunct um, brands on the backdrop of the press conference here. So you've got AMD, Avalon. Do you remember that? Was that a computer... Some kind of computer company. They make um, antivirus software. And yeah, BMI I think that's baby, right. B- 
BMI, which is now a British Midland International, an airline that doesn't exist anymore, and Rivals.net. But I never no. found out what that was. Don't know what that uh, is. But yeah, that, that, um, I took notice of that. And then, yeah, he, d- he doesn't resign. No, he doesn't. Or fucking yeah. two with, uh, with if. Yeah, so yeah, much to everyone's dismay, doesn't um, Phil Jupiter's journalist lays into him, telling him that no one likes him, his wife's left him, you know, everyone, they'll have a whip round and pay for his uh, plane fare home. And that's when we have him reciting the Rudyard Kipling poem, If, and the iconic, ladies and gentlemen, England will be playing far, far fucking two. So meanwhile, Scotland have been knocked out of the competition by Ethiopia by an own goal, which was a funny bit. <laughs> Did they say something like, can Scotland... It's like they did it in 74. They did it in 78. <laughs> They've done it again. <laughs> yeah. That's a good bit. Again, it's full of good bits. It just yeah. doesn't pull together. So England have to beat Argentina to stay in the World Cup. Phil Jupiter's character is interviewed on TV. And he says that if England win, he'll quit his job and become a bin man. With Wacko in jail, Mike gives the armband to Alan Massey, who finally gets his much-wanted nickname, Skipper. With five minutes to go and the game's at nil-nil, Mike plays his last throw of the dice and it's time for Tonka, as Martin Tyler's commentary says. Uh, Tonka recreates Maradona's classic second goal against England at Mexico 86, only hits the bar and handballs it into the uh, into the goal on the rebound. Re- recreating both of Maradona's goals against yeah. England in 1986. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, England win the game. We have a, a funny jump cut with uh, Phil Jupiter's now a bin man. A disabled man thinks that he's cured and tries to stand out of his wheelchair. <laughs> he isn't cured, so just falls over. England get to the semi-final, beating Romania and France with Rufus Smalls finally breaking his two-year wait for a goal and scoring two. England get knocked out by Brazil in the semi-final. We have a headline uh, reading Tonka's Tears. Uh, Mike, who's been interviewed by Mike and Bashir on the on the plane home, he feels it's time to step down as the England manager. Only a massive crowd is there to meet uh, Bassett and the players. They get a hero's welcome. Mike and Karin are reunited as he yells, four more years, the end. All soundtracked by that Robbie Williams song. Because I'm mm. listening to that song going, what's this? It sounds a little bit like Robbie Williams and I shazammed it. I was like, I've never heard this song in my life. And then... No. Yeah, it turns out it was specifically for for the film. Not a classic, Robbie Williams. No, not there with... By um, any stretch of the imagination. I didn't know who sung it, but it, it sounds very much of the time, does that song. But Yeah, oh, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Could not have told you it was by or, or anything like that. Um, So what... What are our, our general thoughts before we rank this guy? I mean, I think we, we've pretty much picked picked holes in it as we've gone along but it mm. does i yeah the problem for me is that it's it runs out of steam too early doesn't follow through with key jokes that, that it should do that would make it much much funnier and yeah i yeah I, in in the end ultimately disappointed because i thought that it, it starts so well and just runs out of steam yeah for me it was like the guess football equivalent of something like scary movie where it just feels like it's something that's riffing on something else rather than an original piece of work and I think that was sort of disappointing looking back at it and watching the impossible job is you realize a lot of these gags that they do set up 
aren't as original as you think and they're all kind of playing off something else that's already existed yeah i i um i i got to the end and thought of sort of really three big things that i had issues with and one is definitely what you've just said there um is like it's re- it's almost too footballing like it's there's a there's you can probably go through that i bet you you can go through that and, and much more than any of us have picked up on you'll be like that's based on that incident or that person or that thing and actually like i don't think it should be because obviously in a general sense it's good you can reference gaza you know so, and you can reference the the plight of england at world cups and and the hand of god great that's a nice reference and because these are like these universal english things right but like um there was too much where it was like this is only funny if you really know football and like you know i do love football but even i was just like i just want it to be a bit more like a bit more of a kind of story and a film and a comedy than than a kind of piss take of really the footballing world if you know what i mean that was that was one big thing for me, and it was something that I thought might be a talking point in this podcast, but I think we're all pretty much of the same opinion here. All three of us are football fans. Does this film work if you're not a football fan? I don't think it does. And, you know, the way it's, um, <clears throat> you know, recently when it's had its uh, 20th anniversary um, revisits, you know, a lot of my research was done from articles that were revisiting it 20 years on. But these are all from football publications. They're not yeah. Empire aren't doing a retrospective on Mike Bassett and why was it so good, but um, the Athletic are. Yeah, and I think that's that's where the discrepancy in the audience and uh, critic numbers come from. Yeah, I think you can watch something. I think the the Americans tend to get this right with if you think of a film like A League of Their Own or something like that, where you can, I have no interest in baseball, but I can watch a film like that and enjoy it and get a lot from it. And it it makes sense. Whereas would people who don't know anything about football be able to watch Mike Bassett and get the same sense that you might get from like a league of their own or something similar. It's a hundred percent. And then like, and then I think that really, if you think about it in terms of that, about going, how does this feel for someone who doesn't get every single reference that's happening? And then suddenly it brings, for me, into question, the, the structure of the film is bizarre, I think. I think it opens how you want it to open, it sets everything up. But but it's crazy to me that they don't go, England have qualified for the World Cup, we've got the best manager in the world, and he's had a heart attack, what are we going to do? And then you get and then and then because it's the world cup's about to start in 10 days they they scrape the barrel they panic and they pick some bloke and his first game is the group game and that way we would watch the whole world cup but they mm. they they we watched three qualifiers and also the first qualifier doesn't happen until about halfway through the film mm. we watched three qualifiers where where it's the same every time it's just aren't england terrible there's no kind of progression going on and they kind of scrape through and then the same thing happens in the group. The group basically emulates that again. And then the film's over and it goes, they got to the semifinals. Good night. And it's like, what? Why didn't I watch the story of their World Cup journey? It's really strange. And I think only people who are really into football would make that mistake, I think. Do you think that they thought there were no jokes to be had in England's turning a corner mid 
mid-tournament and suddenly becoming good. I totally get that, but I think what you can you could very just as easily do is it's not about them turning corners. It's about them al- always nearly failing, but somehow it's keep the thing keeps going. And it's this manager who shouldn't be... Di- and I think there could be... Because it's the same if you think about so many fun comedy films that are sports films. So like... Um, uh, like you said, like Americans do it quite well, but like, I'm, I can't even, I haven't got a very good example in the top of my head. But like, Happy Gilmore, Happy, well, Happy like, Gilmore, like per- perfect. He just gets, he does really well, and it doesn't, it doesn't undermine the story. It's like because he, he's doing well because he shouldn't, mm. and and it's all, all and it, and it's like the whole time, and also he's got someone you really want him to beat, and all this stuff, and but um, uh, it feels like they just. They they went way too football with it, and not enough story and yeah that was and then and then so it's like those and then my last thing was just what we've kind of covered which is, I think for this kind of like gag, gag heavy film. You you need it, the script needs to be so tight because it's so hard to have that level like kind of gag rate because they've even got like visual they've got headlines popping up really quick. And stuff like this, and there's little background jokes and stuff. You know, like like the proper spoof films. It just it's just a bit of a shame because, and like you said, Rob, it's really frustrating because there's a part you going, this is there's a great film in this, and they haven't quite nailed it. Guy, what would you say the legacy of this film is? Because you know, obviously, in in the last few years, you know, publications like The Athletic have been kind of hailing it as a like cult classic and a forgotten masterpiece. But is is it just? in football circles and obviously we talked about the the halftime uh the halftime scene becoming like a meme that gets rolled out for every England performance and every World Cup. Yeah. Since. I mean it's up there with the Neil Warnock, you've got to fucking die to get three points kind of meme that comes out uh, every now and then as well. I think that's it, isn't it? There's people like Jack Whitehall have said it's like their favourite film, but it all but it feels like people who are very much football fans are citing it as their favorite film rather than it being a great film it's you know i think it's become part of the zeitgeist almost i think mike bassett is almost shorthand for an old school manager who has a very particular way of playing football and very particular tactics you know you think of a tony pulis or a sam allardyce as you know as what allardyce would become when i was watching it i was thinking is mike bassett based on sam allardyce but i think at that time, either Bolton were starting to ride quite high and, you know, they had JJ Kocher and players like that, so maybe not quite at that point, I don't think. But any of its legacy really is within football, isn't it? Which I think ultimately means we have to kind of mark it down for a wider audience. I think, that, you know, if we, if we brought in someone else who, who wasn't a football fan, I think that would kind of pull down the enthusiasm uh, for it amongst the three of us, which which is already kind of only so so. Yeah, I just wanted to. Yeah, I... sorry. Oh, go on. Sorry, I was just going to say. Yeah, it kind of for me has to lose a mark a bit for that because we actually spoke about this earlier. But in terms of the royal family being like, oh, you don't have to be from the north. Same for Phoenix Knights. You don't have to have worked in an office paper fact. You know, to to understand the office. Those great Alan Partridge. I don't know East Anglia. Do you know what I mean most people don't know what it's like to have a life like his, where he's like a kind of f- sort of failing TV presenter type, and that all that that's not a, re- a relatable life to most people. But he's so funny that you don't you understand bitterness, and so um, 
but did this, this doesn't achieve that. It, you have to know football. <laughs> yeah. And that's why it's funny. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You have to get the references. Um, it spawned a TV series in 2005. Did either of you watch the TV show on ITV? No. No, I, saw it. I think I watched a little bit of it, but it didn't really kind of um, catch on. So in the in the series, Bassett comes out of retirement to take over League Two side Wirral County. Um, and then they almost made a sequel back in 2016. So they tried to do a Kickstarter to raise money for Mike Bassett, interim manager, but it never hit its target, so the film was scrapped. But uh, they did do a teaser trailer for it, which I have watched, which is pretty ropey. And the synopsis of the would-be film is, England have appointed German coach Jorgen Manstein, widely regarded as the most tactically brilliant coach in the world as their new manager. However, cultural and language barriers cause problems between him and the players, so the FA bringing former England manager Mike Bassett out of retirement to serve as his assistant. Before long, Bassett finds himself back in charge of England. I mean, can you imagine going... I think we dodged a bullet. I think we dodged a bullet. They yeah. didn't need to do it. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine that film? The, the the teaser trailer looked bad. It's it's Bassett sat on the bench, surrounded by Germans, not understanding a word they're saying, and it's pretty poor. <laughs> Uh, so, Guy, where, I mean, Steve, feel free to uh, offer, I don't know if you've seen the other three films that we've done so far. but I've not, you can, so I'll... <laughs> you can maybe take a backseat on this one, but Guy, what do you think? Where's this going in our ranking? Definitely, I think we can both agree it's better than Lesbian Vampire Killers, yes? Yeah. So it's Agreed. not awesome. Better than Man About the House, I would say yes. Yeah. I think and now it's... is it better? Is it better than Staggered? Yes, for me, it's, it's better than Staggered. I enjoyed it more. I laughed more. I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. I, ultimately, I think if the, if the top thing we're reckoning these on is how much we laughed, then I've definitely laughed much more in this than easily than Staggered. I think it's a better film as well. I think it's a better film than Staggered. Yeah, well, quite an easy decision in the end, which means we've got a new film at the top of our leaderboard. Mike Bassett, number one, Lesbian Vampire Killers still. <laughs> but have you seen Lesbian Vampire Killers, Steve? No, I remember when it came out, and I didn't want to see it then, and I still don't. Don't, don't do it. Don't do it to yourself. <laughs> don't do it. Um, now, last bit of uh, business is our quiz, guy. And this week, handily enough, Steve has written questions for us on Steve Barron and Ricky Tomlinson. Question one: Ricky Tomlinson played in a band called the Hi Fi, the Hi Free Three. What instrument? Does did and does he play? I did read about the high three three. Um, I'm gonna guess bass guitar. Incorrect. I mean, I won't get the point for this, but I think is it he plays this in Royal Family as well? Is it a banjo? It is the banjo, yeah. So Rob, Steve Barron, what was the name of his first film? Um, well, I think it might have been Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Incorrect, I'm afraid. It's a film called Electric Dreams. Okay, question two for you, Guy. Going back to Ricky's band, High Free 3. Um, the pianist, at the same time, was also in another band. What was the name of that band? I think I know this one. Was, on. was it the Quarrymen? 
It was. Yes. Who went on to become? The Beatles. Yes. It's pretty cool, isn't it? That is pretty cool. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's good. Uh, well done. So you have a point. Rob, question two. Where was Steve Barron born? Oh, God. <laughs> it's such a long time ago since I looked at his Wikipedia there. Uh, mm -hmm. Oh, hang on. Was he born in Hong Kong? No. He was born in Dublin. Before he was an actor, what did Ricky Tomlinson do as a job? I know that he was sort of in like the trade union sort of thing. Was he a miner? No. Rob, do you know? I don't know, no. He was a plasterer. Rob, Steve Barron's, his work on music videos defined the beginning of the MTV era. But which of these videos contained the word MTV in the lyrics? That's, uh, I know that one, that's money for nothing. Very good. Yeah. I, I want my MTV. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, so it's one all. We've got two questions to go each. Uh, question four. Ricky Tomlinson claimed, this is, this is a gorgeous bit of information I've come across. Um, <laughs> Ricky Tomlinson claimed, Actually, so to give you a backdrop, he was arrested and actually did some prison time, I think, for um, activism around sort of uh, um, unions and stuff like that, striking. And so I, I don't fully know the full story, but anyway, as a result of all that, Ricky, Ricky Tumner Thompson claimed that a well-known broadcaster and game show host was actually an undercover agent for MI5. Who was that? It's not Bruce Forsyth, is it? No. Oh, I would love that if it had been him. It's Richard Whiteley. <laughs> of course! Amazing. Yorkshire Television. Me and Rob went to watch Countdown get uh, filmed, didn't we? When, when Richard Whiteley was the host and Carol Vorderman did the, the, yeah. the numbers. And it, it was about two weeks before he died. And it was the, one of the last recordings he did. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. He didn't die very long after that, did he? No, he didn't. Yeah, it's quite soon. So, yeah, Mr. MI5. Got shot in Monaco in a casino. Rob, question four. Which song of which Steve Barron directed the music video is referenced in his autobiography? In the title of his autobiography. It's got to be Take On Me, hasn't it? It has to be. No. It's Billy Jean. His autobiography is called Eggs and Chips and Billy Jean. Final question for you guys. If you get this, you've won the quiz. Um. Oh, yeah, okay. So, Ricky starred in 25 episodes of The Royal Family. Other than Brookside, which he was in 191 episodes of, what is the only show that he starred in more episodes? I don't, I don't think it's this because I think it was less, but it's the only one I can think of. It's Cracker, but I think it was like 15 or something. It was not Rob. Do you, do you know this? I don't know that, no. Playing the field. Oh, oh, of course. The women's football team yeah. drama. Was yeah. it a comedy drama from the good. 90s? God, I never watched it. I heard good things though. Yeah, I think I was a bit too young for it, but I think it was really good at the time, wasn't it? Mm. 
Okay, Rob, you could you could draw level with this. Uh, Steve Barron's 1993 film Coneheads came from a sketch from Saturday Night Live, but the team of writers who wrote Coneheads described it as the precursor to a TV series that they then created. Third Rock from the Sun? Correct. They said they uh, they wanted to revisit this thing of aliens coming to Earth and having to live like normal people and, and they made Third Rock from the Sun. So we've kind of come full circle from a, a, a TV show inspiring a film that inspires a TV show. So to all, Guy. To all. To all. Um, what does that do to the overall scores? I believe it was 7-6 before. Uh, so it's now 9-8. Uh, yep, 9-8 to who? To Rob. Uh, to me. Oh, all to play for. Uh, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you enjoyed revisiting um, Mike Bassett, England manager. I did. Thank you for having me. It's been really nice. Yeah, great to have you on. Thank you. First time we've had a guest on. And uh, I think it's worked quite well as a dynamic. We've enjoyed it so much. Maybe we'll do it again. Mm, but you'll have to then rank the other guests based on <laughs> against me. So at the moment, I'm lesbian vampire killers. You are <laughs> number one. <laughs> <laughs> and also, yeah, top and bottom. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, we have got some more guests lined up for later on in the series. Um so if you can't stand the episodes where it's just Guy and I chatting to each other, you don't have to wait too long for another guest to come along. But in the next episode, it will be just Guy and I. And uh, we're moving on completely from September 2001 all the way to August 2001 when The Parole Officer was released. That will be our next film. Guy, what uh, are you looking forward to Parole Officer? Yeah, I've not seen it since I had it on VHS back in the in two thousand and one. So I'm, I'm interested to see. As we've mentioned before, big Steve Coogan fan, so I'm quite interested to see what his kind of big screen debut uh, as a leading man. Um, I'm a ma- like. massive Steve Coogan fan, and and you know he co-wrote this with Henry Normal, who I, I'm a big fan of as well. So mm-hmm. it's going to be fun looking into those guys. And this, I, I always thought of the parole officer as being like a feature length. Um, episode of Coogan's Run so I think that's what we'll we'll dive into that and Paul and Pauline Calf uh, because it's the same writing partnership and uh, looking forward to that guy yeah me too yeah so um, yeah thanks a lot thanks Steve once again thank you very much until the next time we'll see you later thank you for listening to BritCon Goes to the Movies with Guy Walker and Rob Heath thanks to Mark Phillips for the podcast artwork you can get in touch with us by emailing BritConGoes at gmail.com or you can find us on Instagram and Twitter as at BritConGoes. And don't forget to check out the BritCon Goes to the Movies playlist on Spotify and Amazon Music. Please like, subscribe and review so that others can find the podcast. See you next episode.